Good day. This is the 27th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. Um, this podcast is coming to you from Montreal. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe. Um, Free City Radio uh, explores social movements and also the intersections of art and activism, both here locally in Montreal, but also around the world. Um, I also host a weekly community radio show on CKUT, which is our campus community station in the city that broadcasts at 90.3 FM. Um, this uh, podcast is an effort to uh, have a bit more room to explore different voices, and uh, it's actually different content from what you hear on the radio show. I add some music and usually have a number of other interviews. Uh, so thanks for being with us. Um, it's snowing today actually a lot. I'm looking out the window and it's, uh, yeah, full-on snowstorm. Um, so January, February now in Montreal. Um, so thanks for being with us. Um, it's been a pleasure to uh, bring these uh, shows uh, to you here on um, a totally different format than what I'm used to. Um, so thanks for tuning in. If you've been liking the uh, podcast so far, I'd really ask you to just tell a few friends. Um, they can subscribe through Apple Podcasts. It's uh, Free City Radio. So thanks for that. On the show this week, I wanted to feature uh, an interview that I did with a writer and a longtime activist in uh, the New York City area named Eric Larson. Eric's written a number of different books, um, one of them that comes to mind that I think is really excellent is actually a collaboration between him and um, artist Seth Tabachman. Um, and that's basically uh, an effort to look at the ways that um, the economic crisis of 2008 uh, on Wall Street impacted poor and working people and um, created displacement both within cities and beyond. It's a graphic book so there's drawings and texts uh understanding the crash it's it's very good um and um also just artistically it's excellent eric also wrote a book called the people's pension the struggle to defend security social security since reagan i have that book also and i think what's really important about it is um it highlights the uh, connection between social movements and policy in the sense that I think often the mainstream media narrative sort of frames, um, you know, a policy like social security in the United States as something that was granted to the people on the basis of goodwill on the part of, of power, on the part of the state. But I think what Eric does is locates a policy um, the, the policy of social security within social movement struggles and that being a battle that has uh, lasted generations um, and continues uh, since the neoliberal era of Reagan until now, uh, you know, that's obviously been challenged um, very, very seriously. But I think locating these, these um, policies like social security within the framework of social movement victories is really important. Um, and I think Eric does a great job around doing that. Um, so, 
Yeah, so Eric's working on a number of uh, books. The upcoming one's called The Operating System, An Anarchist Theory of the Modern State. Um, so I talked to Eric actually about a protest that took place um, in New York City in uh, the winter of 2002. I thought it was really important to look at that action because uh, it was uh, the intersection of challenging global inequality and war. It was a protest uh, in the months after 9-11 in New York uh, against the World Economic Forum and looking at the ways that those systems of power um, intersect. Um, a lot of the ideas around the interview are are explored in the discussion. So I just want to get right to it. This is my conversation with Eric Eric Larson um, here on Free City Radio. It was just literally months after 9-11. Uh, the whole country was in shock. We were in shock as a movement because an awful lot of our energy up to that point had been deployed around globalization, corporate globalization, and uh, the impact of the, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, the global banking establishment, multinational lenders, and the, the impact they were having on economies around the world. I mean, not just uh, the developing world and the developed world. And this was, you know, and 9-11 comes along and it changes the subject immediately. And as I remember, uh, the protest actually, the, the planning actually started earlier, at least in kind of an embryonic way, because we knew that there was that, that uh, an invasion of, you know, an invasion of Afghanistan happened, an invasion of Iraq was, was, it was the Bush administration all of a sudden, invasion of Afghanistan was contemplated, um, and, and the, you know, the, the, the war drums were beating. And so uh, we wanted to, uh, to have a large, large uh, protest demo in New York to basically, because we thought it was very important to say, New York does not support this. You know, we're the city that was hit by this horrible attack. And we don't support going to war. Okay, so we began to, to think about some kind of a large event. We were having small events quite a bit, like increasingly. Uh, at the UN and elsewhere, but we thought about doing something large. All of a sudden, one day, we get the news that the World Economic Forum was going to have a, uh, uh, instead of having its Davos meeting in Switzerland at this big ski resort, it was going to do it in New York as a kind of a solidarity gesture with the people of New York and with Wall Street. And I remember literally being at a Direct Action Network meeting and somebody saying this and it was several of us chiming in uh, all of a sudden, you got to be kidding. They're, they're going to do this. They're going to turn New York City, which has been, you know, uh, uh, devastated into a kind of a, uh, like a, a, a capitalist love fest. And we thought, well, we have to, we have to build it around this. We have to do it. It's, it's a little off the subject, but we have to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, it, it gets to, um, the resources we had, we had, if, when I think back on a tremendous resources and abilities for doing something like that back then, we had the direct action network. We had a lot of organized labor was, was on our side um, as a result of uh, the Seattle battle in Seattle uh, and um, uh, a lot of monitoring, like careful, really there was a lot of careful monitoring of what these international institutions were doing 
uh, there had been big protests in, in Davos the last several years against that, against the World Economic Forum meeting because it was considered to be kind of like an epicenter major event of the year for uh, the, the, the advocates of corporate globalization. And so uh, that was something that was a focal point for us. Uh, so we were able to kind of turn on, the di on a dime in terms of research and getting our messaging together and so forth, because we'd been focusing on what these people had been doing for so long. Um, and there was, uh, so the, the, there was Dan, there was also- uh, The Direct uh, Action Network. Direct Action Network, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Convergence Against Capitalism, which had, uh, we, which is kind of the, 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 the umbrella that we had when we were organizing to go and protest the Free Trade of America, uh, Area of America, uh, negotiations in Quebec City uh, a year earlier. Uh, so we had we had infrastructure and we had a lot of um, actually institutional support too. We had um, labor organizations in New York City who were saying, we don't want the WEF here. We had uh, uh, the AFL-CIO uh, offering to do teach-ins for us. Uh, we had uh, Global Eye on Davos, which was literally an organization, the, a think tank kind of organization was set up to monitor the WEF. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was actually kind of easy to get a lot of people together um, to, uh, you know, we had a, a, a counter summit at Columbia University. Uh, we had teach-ins at the New York City Labor Council by uh, John Sweeney, who was the head of the AFL-CIO. I mean, we had, we had momentum and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just us, you know, uh, street level activists who were, who were sure. uh, doing this. And we actually, and, and, and we had, um, you know, some citywide planning over this thing. Yeah. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, I just say parenthetically that that, uh, when I think back on it, it's, it, it's, we had an awful lot of organization and momentum coming together that, that's very hard now for, for complicated reasons uh, to do. I mean, we, we, we don't have the kind of, you know, you mentioned Dan, we don't have groups like that, that, that are able to sort of pull together coalitions the way we had back then. And there wasn't as much, and there's not as much focus on globalization, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of what kind of resources we need in the future for something like this. Um, so that gives you a little bit of the background uh, of, of, of what was going on. Um, it wasn't like, I, what I'm really trying to say is it wasn't like uh, there were just a bunch of <clears throat> quote unquote street level troublemakers who wanted to oppose this, uh, this wonderful thing that the WEF was doing by coming to New York. There was a lot of opposition and opposition among working people. Um, you know, it was not, it wasn't like a, a, a slam dunk. And it was, it was seen as a very, you know, Bloomberg had become mayor. Yeah. It was seen as a very kind of almost, uh, stereotypically Bloomberg thing to do. Here's a guy who's a immensely wealthy capitalist. His answer to 9-11 uh, to, uh, is to bring a, bring a bunch of his wealthy capitalist friends to New York, take over uh, a big swath of the city, because of course there's gonna be enormous uh, uh, security and, and just plant this spaceship in the middle of Manhattan for a few days that nobody's allowed into except, except Bloomberg's wealthy capitalist friends. And that's supposed to 
That's supposed to raise our morale somehow. That's supposed to make us feel better about what, what just happened. I mean, it was, it was, it was ridiculous. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and in so many ways, I mean, we are in a moment of crisis. It's January 2021, and we yeah. see the ways that points of crisis uh, disproportionately impact um, people based on class, based on race, based on location. Um, and there's um, such an important, I think, mainstreaming of analysis around the ways that inequality is shaped by structural injustice, which is a good thing. Uh, and, and I think there has been a, an advance in popular understanding around those structural inequalities, yeah. um, which uh, I, I, I think connecting that to histories of struggle is really important. So in regards to the World Economic Forum in New York City, I think 9-11 has become such an important reference point um, and continues to be. Um, and I, I'm referencing that in terms of the way that 9-11 uh, impacted New York. I mean, of course, you're, you're a New Yorker and um, that's how I know you is from yeah. activism there. Um, so I, I just wanted to highlight the ways that um, post 9-11 New York, and I remember speaking with you then in the fall actually, uh, and thinking about the ways that different communities were responding to a crisis. And I'm underlining crisis here because of the crisis we're in now. It's not the same crisis, but I think thinking critically about crises and how they manifest is important today. Um, but I remember, for example, the ways that um, communities of migrant workers who were impacted by 9-11, especially um, window washers, there was that company Windows on the World, I remember. Yes. Um, and there was quite a few services for uh, working class uh, migrants who were actually the ones tasked with cleaning the windows of the financial sector and their their office check-in point was in the world one of the two world trade center buildings and their check-in point i remember was in the morning so everybody right. would go there to get their schedule and then go to clean around maybe i'm missing a few details but something like that remember the frank morales explaining that to me a community activist in new york oh yeah yeah um but but yeah just just to think about you know, the ways, and you talked about the World Economic Forum that Bloomberg had decided to bring in as sort of a spaceship and, you know, a class of people that were not impacted in the same way by 9-11 and its consequences. So thinking about how crisis disproportionately impacts people, I, I don't know if you have any reflections on, on the moment we're talking about January 2002, and thank you for clarifying that and what's happening now and the ways that crises disproportionately impact uh, communities in different ways due to structural inequality. Oh yeah, yeah, the, um, there's, there's, a, there's a huge parallel there, absolutely. Uh, we have a pandemic now that's, that's, it's, that is, I mean, it's, it's a problem for everyone, but it is a frightful thing in communities of color around the country and, and, and lower income communities they're being hit by the, uh, just they're taking the brunt of it and, and the brunt of the cleanup, just like during 9-11. You're right, it was, it was um, people who really had no choice but to go back in and start to 
sort things out, literally, literally taking brooms and dustpans and cleaning up uh, in a lot of cases. Um, I remember walking by buildings um, down there where literally all the, you know, the windows are all blown out. Somebody had to repair those. And those, those are working people who are you know, breathing toxic dust all the time anyway. And now they're, they're down there doing this. Um, it's a, uh, just parenthetically, I mean, uh, it's worth noting that 9-11 that, that, that uh, health-wise was not just a New York City problem. I mean, this was the World Trade Center down in lower Manhattan, people from all over the, the greater New York area from three states uh, were working in that place and were affected by it. I mean, it was a, the, the actual footprint of the problem was geographically was very large. Uh, and it's the same thing here, you know, with the pandemic, we've got a problem that's literally, it's literally global. Um, there is a tendency uh, by the state when something like this happens to think small, to think that, uh, this is a problem just for us. It's just a problem right here, or it's a problem over there, and it can be contained, or it is contained. And that was the thinking during 9-11 too. It was some of the most outraged people about the, uh, the, the situation, the health situation in lower Manhattan were families in New Jersey. But nobody was really thinking about that in, in New York City. Uh, with the pandemic, it's, it's kind of the same thing in a way. Um, you, you can't, so your, so your uh, infection rate is, is lower in such and such part of the United States right now. Okay, well, you know, gee, we don't have to take precautions. Well, no, nobody's isolated from this thing. Uh, you, 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 can't, you can't think of it compartmentally that way. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, a big, that's a big parallel too. It points up one of the problems with the state system we have, I think, is that there's this tendency to sort of parochialize your thinking uh, even in the face of something that's that's obviously a massive event, um, so there's that, uh, and then you know there's also just with getting back to the WEF itself, there's this tendency uh, of people on top to think of it as a PR problem. You know, the whole point of bringing the WEF to New York was to say we're open for business again, everything's back to normal. Uh, gee, it's five months since this this terrorist attack happened and this disaster happened in lower Manhattan. But, you know, we're, we're New York strong, we're back in business and all that kind of thing. Uh, that was not the way the, the city was thinking. And we were still in an emergency situation. I mean, there was still, a, there was literally a, a, a dust cloud uh, over that part of Manhattan that was, that was, uh, that the city was trying its damnedest to get us to all ignore. I mean, it was literally a physical thing that was still there. Uh, and um, in the case of the pandemic, same thing. Uh, the reason we're in a, in a second wave or a third wave now with the pandemic is because governments were so eager to declare the thing over in March or April uh, and, and just sort of pretend that, that we can get back to normal now. Uh, and, and, and that's still, that's basically their tendency when these things happen is, is, to, is, to, is to open for business again as soon as possible. And that's that's just the capitalist nature of the system is is oh my god we're losing money you know we have to we have to start uh, we everybody has to get back in the office you know or the factory floor or whatever or, or back in their in their in their uh, Uber car so that's again uh, the problem is this attempt to sort of declare the problem over and and get it out of the way. Thank you, Eric, for sharing all that. Um, thinking about policy. 
extending on this critique that you're outlining uh, of sort of the short-term nature of um, political policy uh, on the part of both the mainstream Democratic Party and, of course, the Republican Party or whatever you want to call it. The party um, of Trump, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we see sort of similar short-term thinking here in Canada um, with, right. you know, optics from the Liberal Party uh, of Justin Trudeau that um, appear um, progressive globally, but don't really address a lot of the root issues. Right. Um, right. But I, I think I wanted to maybe just highlight a term and I thought of this in, in 2016, I, I, it was sort of like an alarm going off in my head when Trump was elected about sort of, as, as it's called the centrists or liberal class. Uh, and the term is shortcuts. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about that now in terms of what you were reflecting on about 9-11 and the pandemic and sort of the, and the push to just sort of move things on without actually addressing the roots of the, the, the crisis in the moment. Yeah. And that, and those types of decisions actually um, elongating or perpetuating the crisis because the, the points of, of, of issue aren't being reflected on or acted upon in a long-term way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, around Trump's election in 2016, a lot of those long-term injustices and structural inequalities um, that were part, not the only element of Trump being elected, but a part of, of uh, the reason that some working people did vote for him. Uh, of course, the adoption of racism uh, was also part of that, um, yeah. that, that populist, um, racist, right media had perpetuated. All this to say that as the new Biden administration's coming in, and we're talking, Eric, um, one day after the inauguration. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's this idea of going back to normal or quote unquote, and of course this affects the whole world. But, you know, I think about militarism and I think about our conversation about the World Economic Forum and the consequences, right? Like for example, the targeted assassination in violation of international law of Soleimani in Iran, for example. Like yes. the idea that an event like this will just go away you know, because a democratic mainstream administration came into play. We saw with 9-11 that events have consequences, historical events. You know, the Afghanistan situation dates back, I mean, historically to colonialism, but in a more recent sense to 1979 and the U.S. intervention and the proxy war between the Soviets and the United States. All of this to say that that led to devastating consequences for, for you as a New Yorker and, and for many people, right? Sure. This inability to think consequentially about the long-term impacts of policy, militarism, health, economic injustice. Yeah, so any reflections on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 and you're right to bring up uh, Afghanistan because that's, that's still a problem. It's still an issue uh, almost 20 years later. Um, the, uh, the, it's the same thing with the pandemic. Uh, this is not something that, uh, that came out of nowhere. Uh, we've had a number of close calls with uh, other epidemics that, that could have been as devastating as this one, and we're likely to have more. And it doesn't seem to me that there is, uh, that an ability has been developed to 
to, uh, uh, to, to cope with it in a, in a systematic way, either nationally or globally. Um, this is a this is a problem that pandemics are a problem that literally needs global cooperation. There's no institutions to do it. The the WHO is is has no real power. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of 9/11, again, um, you had this the response to it. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, in some ways, the cause of it, uh, if you want to really go back to and, and understand the dynamic, was the the insistence on the U.S. of going it alone and controlling any kind of um, international response to something like a terrorist attack, to something like uh, the threat of Saddam Hussein, anything like that. The United States has to go it alone and, and, and the world has to just follow and, and be dragged along uh, by the nose. And uh, you know, all in the service of, uh, of, of this sort of U.S. global imperium. Uh, there's no, that is not questioned, uh, that is not really being questioned by the incoming Biden people who I was disheartened to say are the same people essentially who uh, served under uh, Obama and were um, absolute dyed in the wool uh, American interventionists. Uh, any problem in the globe, American intervention, that's what's needed to solve it. Uh, and so, and, and there's no real attempt to look at these as global problems that need to be uh, handled in a global context. In other words, the United States might not always get exactly what it wants, you know, in this situation. And it's the same thing with the pandemic is um, the Trump administration, uh, the former Trump administration, I'm happy to say, uh, you know, treated it basically as a situation of, okay, let's develop a vaccine and let's get all the vaccine we can and, and, and we'll take care of, our, of ourselves first. Uh, before anybody else gets any, in spite of the fact that if, uh, if you leave out sub-Saharan Africa, this is a global economy, this is the global economy they created, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, you are going to get infected again. I mean, it's, it, it, it's gonna continue to be a problem. You, you can't, as I say again, you can't compartmentalize it this way anymore. Uh, and, so there, and so you're absolutely right. There's this tendency to look at it um, uh, to, to, to look at these problems as, uh, as something that can be dealt with in the short term, that uh, can be dealt with in a very parochial, narrow kind of way, um, you know, rather than something that requires a cooperative response. Uh, you know, the, the, the basic tendency of the United States is to, is to kind of apply free market principles to foreign policy or to health policy or to whatever. Uh, you know, with the United States being the, the, the big capitalist that's gonna get its way first. Um, that's that's the, the sort of the basic problem, I think. Hmm. Well, Eric, um, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. So I just wanted to go back to our point of uh, departure for yeah. this conversation at the beginning, which was the World Economic Forum protests in 2002 in January. Uh, in New York, and thanks again for clarifying that. Um, I just wanted to underline that event. Um, I think it's uh, such a, a moving response that happened from people in New York after a crisis, right? And I'm, I've been thinking about it because it's January, but also just also our, our common friend, David Graeber recently died uh, and that's related to the pandemic. Um, 
And uh, David also played a, a role in the, the, the articulation of that protest uh, of the World Economic Forum in the winter sure. of 2002. Um, but uh, just, just to think about, uh, I guess um, if you could just underline that action, I, I remember one of the big marches, I don't remember the departure point exactly, but I, I remember seeing the, the, <laughs> the um, river of people um, and also particularly and what I found very moving at the time was the the signs that were saying New Yorkers say no to war but right. also calling for global justice and economic justice and that connection for me was just so important and I think remains so important today when we think about these compounding crises of climate injustice of the pandemic injustice of thinking intersectionally was really manifested in those signs at that protest, I remember. Yeah, and I, I, you're right. That was one of the most moving things about it is that, is that, we, is that we brought together so many different strands of, of what we were trying to do as a movement, just uh, um, in many, many different places. Um, the, the, the march started at Central Park South, um, you know, not too far from uh, the uh, the Trump Tower at Columbus Circle, mm -hmm. and uh, and then carried on uh, to Park Avenue and down to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which is where the the uh, the the WEF summit was was held. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's there's something to be said about the the contrast between what happened to us that day and what happened on January sixth in, in the Capitol building. Uh, now bear with me. I think there is- Yeah, no, no, please, yeah. please. Thank you so much. Yeah, because um, <clears throat> we negotiated, as we always did in good faith with the police, uh, to, to, to get permits for that march and, under, and get ground rules understood and so forth. Just, just um, sorry, Eric, just to yeah. underline, and I remember this distinctly, and I just want to highlight, that was a family-friendly march. And there were also direct actions which were autonomous. But at that action, I specifically remember seeing many families, New Yorker families there. So I just want to underline that. Families with, with, with small children and baby yes. carriers. Yeah, 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 it was, it was, it was uh, planned that way. And we uh, spent many hours, uh, I and a number of other people, including Ron Kuby, uh, negotiating with the police over this. And we thought we had a fairly good understanding of what was going to happen. And I, I may be a little bit wrong on this uh, with the, the actual hours, but I believe the permit was to uh, allow us to, uh, to march and to gather in front of the hotel until 6 p.m. that day. Uh, we had, there were an army of police. Uh, there were practically at various points more police than marchers, and it was a very big march, like you, like you say. Um, yeah, there were tens of thousands of people there, at least 20 to 30,000 or something. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, I mean, we'd been planning this beforehand. Uh, there was going to be a big event in New York that was going to be more of an anti-war um, theme. So we had all kinds of people coming into the city anyway, uh, tens of thousands. Um, the police, as they usually do in New York, uh, gathered on the sidewalks and sort of pressed in on us. Uh, part of which I maintain is to prevent us from having interaction with other people on the street. Uh, when I go to, when I do a protest like this or demo, 
I like to spend a lot of time leafleting people who might be just passers-by and using the opportunity to acquaint them with what we're what we're what our argument is and what we what the problem is. And the police prevented us from doing that. They wanted us to they wanted to sort of kettle us in this one area, funnel us down to this one place, isolate us from the rest of the people on the street. That was the city's response. I mean, I, I say the police, but it's really the city. Because uh, because I believe that the city they 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 were very keen on holding this this summit uh, with WEF, uh, in spite of the fact that the city really was not for it. So we get down there. We had uh, we were uh, uh, kept from getting anywhere near the actual hotel itself, although we were inside of it. Um, we uh, it was a peaceful uh, demo. Uh, Billy Bragg performed. Uh, we had other people perform, and then all of a sudden, around five o'clock, the police started closing in. And you may remember this: uh, that all of a sudden uh, they started um, essentially prodding us and telling us to leave. Uh, they started arresting people. Uh, they got very ugly. They, uh, they closed off the whole area except one narrow street. So we all had to literally go literally almost single file out of this area, thousands of people. Uh, the, uh, it got very ugly very quickly. Um, you know, there was nothing, I mean, we we're talking to our lawyers and they're just throwing their hands up in the air like, well, they, you know, they made a deal, but they just decided to do it this way. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, you couldn't talk to the police. They wouldn't tell you what they were doing. It was really, it was very typical of the way uh, the police had learned to handle protests after 9-11. Now, of course, you can contrast that with what happened in Washington just on January 6th, where uh, <clears throat> after weeks and weeks and weeks of, of really disturbing uh, calls to action and rhetoric online and in other places by the right, uh, this enormous rally is allowed to be held with minimal police supervision. Uh, the, the, uh, they, they, they had obviously been targeting the Capitol building. There's, there's very few police there. They were overwhelmed. Uh, that was not, uh, to this day, I mean, right-wing uh, extremism is just not taken seriously in this country. That's the reality. Whereas you can have a peaceful march, you can negotiate in good faith with the police if you're on the left, and they, and they will still crack down on you in, in, in really disturbing ways. Uh, in, Wa in Washington with the right, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. They were allowed to storm the Capitol, trash it, uh, et cetera. And uh, some people will no doubt go to jail for that. But uh, the, the, the message really that, we're, that the right received is we got away with it. We were able to do this. We could, we'll do it again. Uh, it's, it's a very, very profoundly different uh, response uh, to right and left activism, if you want to use the word, you know, the term broadly. Yeah, um, and, and I think thinking critically about the ways that um, mainstream media sort of locates oppositional ideas in some sort of similar territory, I mean, just to underline this point, I mean, yeah. When we're talking about these protests that you were describing in the winter January of 2002 in New York, we're talking about demonstrations that were calling for social justice, that were calling for equitable access to health care. And I remember that was an issue at the time for non-status workers who were helping with the cleanup of 
um, and um, also calling for um, uh, a foreign policy of, of peace. I mean, to put it simply, but to call against, uh, to call, um, to call out any uh, uh, move towards war on the part of the what was the George W. Bush administration. Right. Um, this I, I do remember now what you're describing around the Astoria Hotel and that really thin line that everybody had to walk through. I do remember that, and I rem I remember also how the police had sort of and and also the cops looked like stormtroopers, like they're completely like militarized. And if we're talking about tens of thousands of people, we're talking about thousands of police because they, they lined the streets. And I remember also they, they blocked in the middle between blocks, they would sort of throw out barricades and then compress people within each city block. Anyways, all of this to say that um, there, there, I, I didn't see very much, and maybe we could just um, finish on this point, just any sort of thoughts you have about the inability of mainstream media to actually dissect and look at the ways that state power responds differently to progressive street level mobilizations, which I would underline in the case of the action we're talking about are family friendly, are for justice, are for equality. For example, you know, many protests against the Trump administration in recent years were faced with police violence and in contrast, and thank you for highlighting this, um, there, there was much less um, preparation and orchestrated violence against this right-wing extremist racist protest in support of Trump. Why, why, if you could focus on that lack of analysis within the mainstream media and CNN really pushed itself as this sort of progressive, <laughs> media institution in the context of Trump. But for example, this is just a key example of their in of their the ways that their coverage lacks depth and 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 um, critical thinking. Yeah, uh, that's as much a problem now as it was then. Um, at that point, particularly, it was almost uh, this was the challenge is it was almost impossible to talk to a lot of the mainstream media about globalization. They literally, they didn't, the, the people who covered international economics and business and so forth, they, 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 hardly, they, they were so marinated in that kind of neoliberal economic view that they hardly even knew what to say to you, uh, or they, they hardly even understood what you're talking about. Um, likewise, after 9-11, the, 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 the idea of uh, being anti-war in a lot of the mainstream media was just was uh, unthinkable. An awful lot of the main, you got to remember this is January, 2002. The Iraq invasion didn't happen until early the following year. And, and there was already this buildup going on. And a lot of elements in the mainstream media were, were actively encouraging the, uh, the, uh, um, the sort of cultural mobilization towards war. So that was those, and, and, and they weren't going to be deflected. And they, they considered us to be marginal, even though we represented an enormous amount of public opinion, did not want a war with Iraq. But particularly in New York, the, the yeah. opposition to war was huge. Yes. And that was an embarrassment for them because New York was their sort of poster child for the Islamic threat. You know, but even in New York, it was, it was not something people wanted to do. Uh, you know, uh, we have, 
we have a somewhat similar situation now. You look at Black Lives Matter, uh, the coverage of Black Lives Matter, and um, uh, this was hugely ironic to me, is that after George Floyd's murder and after a number of these other incidents, there was actually, all of a sudden, I was seeing, I was seeing article after article in the New York Times and other mainstream media about um, the cultural presence, the, the presence of police in our culture, about cop shows, police procedurals, and the kind of the way they, they create a certain image of the police and cement the popularity of police with the American public. You know, they, there's these representative figures for our society who solve our problems and go out and risk their lives and so forth. All of a sudden, I was seeing all kinds of articles in, you know, places like the New York Times calling that out and saying, you know, isn't this a problem that, 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 uh, the police are heroes in our in our media, even though they behave very differently in real life. And I'm thinking, why haven't you been saying this for the last 20 years? You, you've known this all along, but you didn't say it. What's what's what was the problem? You know, uh, it, you know the the fact that uh, you know CSI is the most popular thing. I mean, uh, I looked at that and, found, and always found that very disturbing. And evidently, people at the New York Times did too, but they weren't saying it. And that's that's part of the problem is that uh, is that the the is that there's a kind of a a feeling that you know it's the old Overton window problem. We know there's something going on here. There's a problem here, but we can't go there. It's on the uh, it's on the other side of the window. We can't go there. We can't discuss it. Uh, and 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 the mainstream media is fatally fatally uh, 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 prone to that. Um, you're, you're, you're talk, we're, when you talk to them, you're talking to people who are intelligent enough to understand the problem, uh, but they just can't go there. And uh, this has been the problem with, uh, with coverage of the police and their conduct towards, uh, towards um, uh, people of color uh, in the community and towards leftists in the community. It's the, it's, 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 it's the same kind of mindset that led them to not understand or not be able to think of um, of our complaints back in 2002 when uh, uh, globalization is flattening parts of the world and uh, a, 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 a reckless war is 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 being implemented. Uh, their their inability to connect with us about it, uh, and that just brings up the need for alternative media. You know that's. That's that's what we've got. That's that's what you're doing. That's what we're all trying to do is to is to have some kind of an alternative voice. Uh, that's the only way we get the word out there, unless something happens that is so bad that the mainstream media just can't ignore it. Like the Capitol building is trash. Like you have you have blatant murder taking place by the police. It it has to come to that before they before they recognize there's a problem. Unfortunately. And I just want to underline that we're talking, reflecting today uh, in a contemporary setting on a protest against economic injustice, but also against war and invasion that took place. And I, I think just underlining this, this is a full 13 months before the U.S. invasion of Iraq. This yes. is in January 2002. And you're right. I mean, the New York Times, for example, was really not having the capacity at that point to think critically about interventionism and 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 when what the consequences would be and um we now know what the consequences were i mean thousands of activists were there on the streets to 
call that um, call that out the call out war culture and interventionism and and in fact faced police violence as a result of simply gathering to to sound the alarm as it were yeah we had this consciousness which was not misplaced that that uh, a decision had been made uh, all that was left was the formalities you know, go to the UN get them to issue a resolution etc uh, but the decision had been made. It had been made without us, uh, without consulting us, and there was no interest in consulting us. That was that was uh, the problem there, and um, we we have that we we experience that in countless times in in in, in the societies we live in. That that uh, that that literally we're di we're disenfranchised, uh, and that the democratic process is something that's that's merely sort of going through the motions. Eric, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks a lot, Stefan. Thanks. That was a conversation with author Eric Larson here on Free City Radio. I wanted to share this exchange. I think Eric's work is really important. Uh, it has been a very meaningful and thoughtful contributor to social activism in New York City and beyond for a long time. Um, Eric has an upcoming book uh, coming out, The Operating System and an, Anar an Anarchist Theory of the Modern State and um, of course um, has worked on numerous publications, including Understanding the Crash with Set to Bachman in 2010 and uh, The People's Pension, uh, The Struggle to Defend Social Security Since Reagan. Um, I'm going to keep the podcast to one interview today because that was a long conversation. Um, so thanks for being with us. I'm going to go out with a piece of music by my friend uh, Nick Schofield, who has a album coming out soon. Um, and I encourage you to check out his work. Um, I work on a project with him called Rev Sona. This is one of his solo uh, pieces, and I just wanted to share it with you here on Free City Radio. Before we get to that, I wanted to just say that um, uh, I would encourage people to subscribe to the Free City Radio podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you want to email me about anything, it's stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Also on Twitter at Spiridon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Uh, so you can find me there. Um, it's been great to share this conversation with you. This is the 27th edition of Free City Radio. We come out every Tuesday. And um, I look forward to um, talking with you again this uh, upcoming week. Please encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. And this is a piece of music by Nick Schofield. Take it easy.
Thank you.